Hello, welcome to the Bond Revisited podcast with me, Tom. And me, Joe. The podcast where we rewatch the Bond films one by one, discuss them, and then rank them alongside the other Bond films to build our own definitive list for the Bond franchise. You are listening to episode 14, where we'll be revisiting the film A Few to a Kill. So, I was pretty excited about this one. Oh, yeah? And it's because it's not Octopussy. <laughs> exactly the same. Exactly the same. I was excited to watch this one. Same. I feel like I might have gone into this film the same way that you might have gone into Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, yeah. Just like, bring on the slog, bring on the old man, bring it all on, <laughs> let's just have a bit of fun. Come on, now, let's let's all wash our hands of Octopussy and just see old man Rog trying to do his thing. <laughs> Wheel him out, come on now, that's it. <laughs> One more time. Make up, make up, there we are, slap it more, on. A bit more makeup, a bit more. more. Bit more, bit more. <laughs> Where's the Vaseline for the lens, quickly? <laughs> Yeah, I was just quite excited about this one. I haven't been excited about watching a, one of these in a little bit here. Uh, maybe The Spy Who Loved Me. And I know that sounds very silly, maybe to the people who uh, who listen to this. Because, like, I ranked this quite low, you know? I think I put this on my bottom five in the initial rankings. Oh, Did yeah. you put this in your bottom five as well? No, I think this one was would have been a, a mid- middling one in my head, yeah. Okay. So yeah, it it feels very strange to be excited to watch a film that before we started this, I thought was bottom five. That's a very odd feeling. Wow. Yeah, I suppose (laughs) that's just the power of octopussy right there. (laughs) It does things to people. It makes you go crazy. But um, I got, yeah, like, same boat. Not for different reasons, but I think, yeah, just just, uh, knowing that this one is Roger Moore's last one and so we're, we've come to the end of the Moore era with this episode and how it is going to be a little bit more um well maybe not as much of a slog as Octopussy was uh just everything I was thinking like Duran Duran the music everything before I was watching it I was like yes this is going to be good and I think I mean yeah I'd say overall it, it still kind of holds up I don't know um I guess we'll get into into it but uh much better anyway, I'll say that right off the bat. Much better well, than before. Yeah, that was a yeah, it cleared that very low hurdle. But to me it wasn't even the case of I went into this thinking this is gonna be good. I just think like it's gonna be something interesting. It's gonna be Roger Moore <laughs> past it. It's gonna be Christopher Walken being weird. Like, I'm up for a weird film. Like, I'm up for that. I don't I wasn't up for it back in Diamonds Are Forever, but we are now on the seventh Roger Moore films seven films like that's crazy uh so it's kind of nice to be like yeah everyone hates this film so let's just watch it have some laughs and then we can get into another new era of bond it definitely is quite weird uh numerous times in my notes i have written down weird or awkward or why (laughs) so (laughs) yeah well we're fine we've got that ground covered isn't that the name of roger moore's autobiography (laughs) (laughs) Weird, awkward, and why? The story yeah. of Roger Moore. <laughs> uh, I mean, probably Christopher Walken would have been a better one, but uh, I'm just here oh. to take the mick out of Roger. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's fine. We can do that now. Yes. And I, I have to say, overall, I have grown quite fond of old Rog. Uh, we'll probably talk about it once we finish this rewatch. But I do, from before we started watching these, I do like Roger Moore more than I did. I never disliked the man, but I... 
I do have a little bit more of an appreciation for him, apart from Octopussy, but everything else. Yeah, I feel like a, a changed man when it comes to Roger Moore. Right, well, then we can just stop the podcast now. My job here is done. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> I'm off now. You like Roger Moore? Bye. <laughs> Good luck with Timothy Dalton. <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> All right, cool. Shall we get into it then? Sure. So we don't start on the circles because there is a quite awkward uh, warning message that appears at the very beginning of this film. Mm-hmm. Because the main villain is a man called Max Sorin. Sorin, Sorin, yeah. Uh, and apparently there is a real company that has a very similar name. I don't think it's spelt the same, but it's very similar. So in order to avoid any legal issues, they initially have a warning message saying, like, Zorin Industries in this film has nothing to do with anything, like, is a fictional uh, creation and has nothing to do with anything real or actual, you know, anything actually real. So a bit weird to see that at the start of the Bond film, but okay, all right. Yeah, yeah, I believe I looked it up afterwards because it kind of caught me off guard. As you say, you just expect the gun barrel on him. What's this? Um, and it was a company called Zoran with an A. Zoran. Yeah, it was like in the early 1980s. So it's strange that that's, I mean, I guess it would be quite the coincidence if there was another another company called Spectre. <laughs> like, they would have mm. needed to put that up again. But yeah, uh, a, a different different start to the Bond film. Yeah, very different. Uh, so then we do get the circles and... Even though it's Roger's last, they didn't replace it. So I think this is the same walk and turn we've had since The Spy Who Loved Me, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so we had one for the first two films and then another, the other five have all had one. But it's fair enough. I get why you wouldn't record it at this point. I just would kind of probably expected them to re-record it for, for your eyes only to sync up with the director. But no, all these films have just had the same walk and turn. Yeah. That would have made more sense because I don't want to. I don't want to beat on Roger Moore here. I think we've already said enough. But like he has visibly <laughs> aged quite a bit oh, since, no. since Moonraker, uh, in particular. I would say, but yeah, like like a fine wine. I, well, to some, to some people, perhaps. Um, but I think there's other points in the, well, in the in the title sequence where they also use very old footage of Roger Moore, and it just that's not what you're getting. It's not what you're getting in this film. No. Uh, so we also, I think the Bond theme is the same as the one from Octopussy, like an older version of it. I don't think they updated that. See, to me, I just, I noted that there was like a sort of fast metronome or some sort of ticking that oh, stood right. out to me. Almost like they were, like, this is fast paced, you know, it just, it seemed very, yeah, it just seemed like there was some sort of little thing they'd snuck in there, like a little ticking sound or a little twinkly sound. Oh, not your twinkles again, not your sparkles. The twinkles, the twinkles are back. Not like Diamonds Are Forever, but a different sort of sound. Yeah. <laughs> There's always like a sparkle or a twinkle for the an actor's last film, I guess. The Twilight Years, there's something there. I was not expecting it for No Time to Die, gotta be honest. No. Yeah, that was a bold choice. I like it. <laughs> so we go to... We we go to a helicopter. We don't do the circles thing, that is odd. I don't think we did anyway where like it goes across and then like expands out. I think like this film has some different editing choices where a lot of the transitions don't use the traditional ones. They're very quick. Um, and I think here it doesn't actually expand out from the circles like you expect. It just cuts to the next scene. Oh, okay. I didn't notice that. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> but yeah, it was very odd. But uh, yeah, so we see a helicopter uh, circling around a load of ice in the ocean. 
and we see some Russians are there, some Russian soldiers, there's some Russian pilots, and nearby we see a man skiing in the snow in all this like white gear, so it do- I, I think I did straight away say, that's James Bond. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh yeah. You can cover Roger Moore as much as you want, but like, that's Roger, I know that guy. Uh, but they don't do like a shot where it's like, look, it's Bond, everybody. You can just see enough of his face to be like, oh, yeah, that's Roger. OK, I got that. Yeah, the, the first shot of his face isn't very glamorous, if I remember correctly. It's like he's kind of like his face is all smushed up with the big hood and the glasses on. And it doesn't look very heroic as the, you know, as a first shot for Bond. But I suppose they're most used for when it's the new actor. I can forgive it now. Yes. <laughs> Someone was like, just put sunglasses on him. That'll be fine. But it wasn't Te- fine. <laughs> Terrible glasses, by the way. Yeah. So this man, or James Bond, is there, and he has like a little tracker that he's using, I believe, and he, the tracker tells him to stop because uh, it's beeping, and he digs up the snow, and he finds a body there. Um, and we have the Russian soldiers nearby who I don't believe know that the man is there or that Bond is there, uh, but Bond unzips this dead man's jacket that he found in the snow. He finds a little heart locket, which seems to have a picture of this person's uh, wife and daughter. But also inside it has a microchip, a little microchip. Um, and at this point, we have the, the Russians show up and find Bond and start shooting at him. So this very quickly goes into a, a ski chase. And I need to straight away say this, especially following Octopussy, we get some really great music in this film. And yes. it starts yes. off straight away with this track... Uh, which, like, the music is so good in this film that I read up about the process of it being made. I usually just, like, look up the Wikipedia page of the film itself and it'll be like, oh, John Barry did this. Okay, cool. It wasn't some random guy who did a bad job. Uh, But this one, I was, like, reading about how he make John Barry makes four different themes and, like, remixes them for different scenes. And we get this melody here where it's very, it's quite slow, but it's got this real weight to it. Like, it's a very Bond theme, but it's not super quick, but it's just... Oh, it's just epic. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say, it's just an epic song. It's it's They do use it quite a few times in this film, and I don't have a problem with that, because I really like this this theme. And it's got like a... As you say, it's not really fast and, and overly bombastic, but it's got this really cool like guitar twang throughout mm. it all and it's very 80s but it's not kind of cheesy 80s it it really works and i'm glad they use it so much because i really liked it i do too like there's this real layering in it we've got all the different bond style horns but you've got these different melodies going on and they're all like good <laughs> i'm gonna have to say that this is really my favorite uh piece of music in these bond films so far there was the one in wow. Moonraker that i really liked and yep. that would be a strong second but I think this might have to be my number one. It's the only one that I listened to afterwards. Like last night after I watched the film, I just brought up the soundtrack and listened to this again. Wow. So even more than the Bond theme itself. Well, that's tricky. (laughs) That's a difficult (laughs) one. I've caught you out there. Yeah, that's a technicality. No, it is very good though. In fact, I think a lot of the music in this film is quite good, which is surprising because if you would have asked me what, what I would have thought about the music in this or kind of how I felt the music went in terms of production. I'm pretty sure I remember reading that John Barry, maybe this is more just to do the Duran Duran stuff, but that he didn't really get on with Duran Duran and didn't like that that whole um, partnership. But I guess when he's just doing it on his own for the film score, it's, it's, it turns out like this and it's great. 
Yeah, we're already on a bit of a tangent here, but it, it's worth repeating because Octopussy, they took a specific uh, direction with that music because of Never Say Never Again. So they were like, well, let's just ram the Bond theme everywhere. And the Bond theme is still in this a bit, but it meant that there was very few original pieces and All Time High was just terrible as well. So mm. it just felt amazing to turn on this film and to get this like Bond ski chase and to just have this like so Bond sounding incredible music that was like, this is like, we didn't talk about the music much for Octopussy, but when you take something away and then give it back, you really appreciate it so much more. I think I might have underestimated with Octopussy just how much that film was her due to just such a bad soundtrack. What's how does this, what's the phrase? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. Yeah. There we are. We were served it on a plate in this and, and we just ate it up. Yes, ate it up indeed. Uh, but yeah, it's crazy because I didn't think about that when I was watching Octopussy. I thought, yeah, this music's not great, but this is a really great example of how much it can elevate and it makes me think back to all the old Sean Connery ones when all the music was pretty good. And mm. it's just really nice that for this one, they, John Barry came back and just wrote some great music. Cheers, John. Way to go, John. Nice one, Barry. Bazzers. Um so the actual scene itself, though. <laughs> oh, well. Mm, you, yeah, so we get another ski chase, which is Bond. So they're in Siberia, just to get that out the way. Uh, I don't think you find that out until afterwards, but uh, Bond is in Siberia skiing away from all these uh, Russian soldiers who are shooting at him, and he goes down all these different uh, slopes, and it's very much one of those chases where Bond just goes, and like all the henchmen just fall down. <laughs> they just fall down yeah um and the main thing that he's trying to do is get away from the helicopter so we have the helicopter that shoots at bond and actually quite a cool little moment here even though it's a bit of a reuse but the helicopter shoots at bond and it destroys one of his skis um which we've had bond and one ski before on i think on a majesty secret service but it was an impressive looking shot seeing somebody with two skis and then having it that like blow up underneath his foot yeah yeah, yeah. It's just the only problem with this whole all that goes on on screen right now is you've just seen you've just seen Roger Moore, and then you're just see, you're seeing the stunt man do this really crazy stuff, and it's like, mm, yeah, that's not really working out anymore. Which I know has been an issue in previous films as well, but it's, I think this one in particular is really just the nail in the coffin for that. Yes, I think they are they avoided doing a lot of zoom in shots for this one, or like the face shots. I think there might have been like one or two shots of like, you know, the green screen or the blue screen or whatever, like of Roger. And they just focus more on the outward shots, which I think helped a lot. But yeah, I, I think that's a general theme throughout this film. How much you can kind of disconnect this <laughs> and just allow it like, yeah, that's just Bond. That's fine. And disconnect Bond a little bit from Roger. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, if you can do that, you'll get along much better with this film. If you can't, then... He's in it a lot, I'm afraid. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's kind of the main star, sorry. Yeah, he's on the poster. It's a whole thing. <laughs> so, yeah, it might bring it down for you a bit. Uh, so, yes, yeah, so Bond is still trying to get away from this helicopter and all these guards, and he falls down. So he's now only on one ski, but he falls down, and there's, like, I think a snowmobile vehicle that has been destroyed. So he goes to the front of it where, like, the ski part is. Like, it's, like, this black ski thing that curls up. 
like snaps it off or it's already been snapped off, jumps on it and uses it as a snowboard to go down a hill. And at the same time, a Beach Boys song starts playing. Not the original version of the Beach Boys song, though. A cover band covering a Beach Boys song, and it just starts playing over it. Was it really just... Was it a cover? I didn't even know that. I just assumed it was, you know, the original. Yeah, it was done... Where was it? I had this here. Performed by a tribute band called Gidea Park? Who was it? Adrian oh. Baker? I don't know. So yeah, they didn't even buy it because it's called California Girls for any Beach Boys uh, fa- uh, fans out there. Uh, but yeah, they got a tribute band to cover it just to use it in this scene. It's cringe. I'm sorry, but this is really bad. It's a little cringe. I don't, I don't like it when Bond uses real world songs like that. It just doesn't fit for me. They do it again in Die Another Day and I hated it. Mm. But yeah, um, it's just, it's another one where I feel like you had a really good scene kind of going on. Not a really good scene, but like you had great music and it's a very classic Bond skiing. I know I've complained in the past about skiing, but I was kind of into this one. I think the music did enough for me that I could just sit down and enjoy what I was seeing. Um, but yeah, it's really awkward. You've got... Because you also have to consider that, as you just said, Roger Moore is quite old and pairing him with what you're seeing on screen is a bit off. But now you've got apparently Roger Moore on a snowboard going down a hill with Beach Boys playing. It's like, what the audience that? always wanted. Yeah. like Yeah. And it feels like they just needed some comedy and this is kind of how they did it. But it's, I don't know, Bond snowboarding in itself. I'm not super into him improvising a snowboard. Yeah, all right. You just didn't need this music to come in. It just doesn't fit. Yeah, the music was just a bit... A step too far. I do think, as well, with all of these sort of stunts, they could have just dialed it back a bit. It's, there is that separation of the actor and the stuntman. That's fine. That's always going to be the case. But it's like they didn't really try to match where they're having the stuntman do really kind of overt stunts, like backflipping and 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 really being nimble. And it's like, okay, you've got to do that for some things. But could they not have toned down that to make it a bit more believable with when you get the shots of Roger Moore? I don't know. I've, I guess not. They just wanted all-out action. They didn't care how it matched. Um, just get the stuntman to do the best he possibly can sort of thing. But I think, yeah, aside from the music, uh, like the the California Girl music, this scene is sort of still saved by that previous track. And also, I do like the location because it is snowy and we have had many skiing things before in Bond, but this one's sort of different because it has, I mean, it's all kind of like based around icebergs and there's water involved and it's just, a, it's still snowy, but it's a little bit different. And I like that. I agree. I don't know why, because I wasn't into For Your Eyes Only in that scene, but this one, I don't know. I think there's like this sense of isolation here mm. where For Your Eyes Only, the whole the twist there was that they were like in the middle of a very busy ski resort. So there was people everywhere and like they were having this chase alongside everyone just trying to like enjoy themselves, which I'm never that into with Bond. It's quite a trope, but I'm never that into. But this one had a real good sense of this kind of as silly as it was at times. Like they were in Siberia. They were in the middle of nowhere. They were surrounded by all these icebergs. It's just bond trying to get away from the russian soldiers there and having all these like melted icebergs as well and this ocean but 
yeah, it's it's not massively different on the face of it. It's uh, very similar, but I agree there was there was just enough here to kind of give it its own kind of identity and kind of it, it worked better than I thought it was. And then you get the the Hatchberg bit, and then it's sort of yeah, <laughs> not quite as good. Yeah. So after that, the the great music then just starts playing again. <laughs> it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> pull it back. Pull it back. Yeah, it's like uh, it's like someone put in the wrong CD and then realised, oh no, <laughs> not that one. Uh, so yeah, they start playing again, and the so when the helicopter the helicopter flew away, and then Bonded is snowboarding, and now the helicopter has come back. So it starts shooting at Bond again. He hides. He then gets a flare out and shoots at the helicopter. He lands it directly inside the helicopter. The cockpit starts filling up with this red smoke. It starts spinning out and it bounces off the snow as it's spinning out, which I was like, that's pretty impressive. I'm assuming they did that for real because you got this helicopter spinning out that then just like bounces off the snow. And it's I actually thought it was quite nice because I was expecting it to just crash and blow up. But you get a little bounce before it then does spin out and crash into a different wall and explode. But it's, uh, it was a cool little moment in there. I didn't catch the bounce. I did catch the obviously the final explosion, which was a little bit. I feel like they've done better shots like that because that was obviously a model, and I think that one just still had too much of modelness to it. Um, but that's just me nitpicking, I suppose. <laughs> uh, so yeah, so the helicopter exploded, and then we see one of these small little icebergs. Uh, a hatch opens. And on this hatch, we see the Union Jack. And it made me realize just how much they're trying to associate the Union Jack with Bond. And I, mm. I probably should have noted it sooner. But since The Spy Who Loved Me, I feel like we've gotten this like in most of the Roger Moore films. Oh, the hot air balloon. In Oct- yeah. Yeah, you got yeah. Spy Who Loved Me parachute, the hot air balloon in the last one, the Union Jack hatch here. I can't think of Moonraker did it, but I wouldn't be surprised if Moonraker for your eyes only did. But yeah, there was a, a little bit of an effort to just get that in. If you can get it somewhere, get it in there. Because now they're trying to hammer that home a bit more. No, yeah, they really are. Uh, so Bond goes over to the hatch and climbs inside it and it closes. And we see a it's like a little submarine, but a very fancy submarine. And a blonde woman is inside controlling it. And Bond starts like undressing and talking about caviar and he said he got like Volker and a microchip or something like that so telling the woman the mission was a success I got the microchip and then we see Bond getting undressed on this sofa bed and the lights dim and as the woman comes over to him because this is a boat like this is a little submarine boat thing that they're in it's just disguised as an iceberg and he accelerates the boat just as she comes over so she falls into him and they kiss and Bond's like, well, it's going to take a, a while to... It's, or it's like a five days to Alaska to get there. So they're kissing and the ice boat gets away. And it was here when I I instantly noticed that Roger Moore sounds weird. He sounds weird? Yeah. Like, oh. the, I don't know if this was dubbed or something. And it's not that his voice was, like, crazy or anything like that. But there was just something off about it. And I couldn't tell you what. I don't know if they were recording the audio differently, but... The vocals were a little bit strange coming from Roger. Oh, 
I didn't notice that. There are lots of other things about Roger I did notice that I'll bring up later on, but that wasn't one of them. Okay, fair enough. I, maybe that is just me, but it just sounded weird. I don't know why. They might have just changed sound mixes or something, but yeah, I was like, hmm, that's... Why is he sounding different? Why does he sound like that? It's because he's 57 years old. Because well... <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it wasn't like an old man thing. It just sounded like they switched mics or something. Oh, okay. Like, something like that. It was like, oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, we do get a lot of that in this film as well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, kind kind of a bit of a lame ending to to this title sequence. I feel like I don't know, just them going off. I just thought that bit with the woman in the suburb thing, but just it wasn't. I can't even think if there's any jokes in there, or if there were, they weren't funny, and it just just ends. And I'm like, oh, okay. Usually, a pre-title sequence might have something a bit more, but this one just didn't. No, it was very standard. I didn't write much down of what they said. Very yeah. standard Bond being like, oh. I'm all went very well and she's old james and whatever you know it's the standard stuff but i kind of like this opening sequence this does tie into the main story so for me that's a thumbs up like there is a point to this it's also a lot shorter i think than the octopusy one or at least it felt shorter and i think the music and the setting of it sells it so not one of the best but i think overall like a a solid enough opening uh for this film yeah i'd agree I'd agree. Could have done without the California girls, but that's fine. It was only on for a few seconds. So <laughs> we'll move on. Um, and so, yeah, we move on to the song and the title sequence. And I'll talk about the song first because I like the song. <laughs> and it's obviously <laughs> Duran Duran uh, with a view to a kill. And so we did it, folks. We finally get a different type of Bond theme. No more slow, sentimental, soppy, all-time high stuff. We get something very different, in fact, and we're going straight to sort of pop, uh, electric, Duran Duran song, and um, yeah, this is this is even before this ranking. This is one of my favourite Bond themes, uh, mainly, but well, because I think it's good. But also, I'm a fan of Duran Duran as well, anyway. Um, and it's just really good. It's 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 kind of strange in places, and some of the sort of melodies that they use and the sound effects they're using in it are kind of strange but at this point i will just happily take anything that's different and <laughs> not just as a ballad and i think this one they really they really did set themselves apart from the previous bond films it's crazy to think how long we were in that like romantic ballad era like it's so insane they thought they could get away with that for so long yeah but I agree. I really like this song. Like I have a lot of nostalgia for this song because it was like one of the first songs I remember liking when I was a kid. <laughs> just oh really? Yeah, just from hearing it. So even before I really knew that much about this film, I kind of knew about James Bond from Goldeneye, and my dad liked Duran Duran and would listen to this song. So, but I knew that was tied to James Bond, but I don't think I probably understood really how. But that chorus really got stuck in my head. So I got like a lot of strong nostalgia for this song and. Uh, yeah, I think something that's really appreciated about this song is that it established a a template of how you can make a pop song still sound like a James Bond song because it's very clearly, a you know, an 80s pop song. It's very clearly that. Uh, but they added all these elements and I don't know if... I don't know if because this song exists and they were able to transform a pop song by adding in the James Bond elements and it works. I don't know if maybe if it didn't work, if like the whole trajectory of the entire franchise for the themes would have massively changed. Um, but I think a lot of future themes owe owe themselves to this song 
because they managed to James Bondify 80s pop. And if they could do it for that, then they kind of can do it for anything. <laughs> I wouldn't have a James Bond reggae song now. <laughs> well, okay, maybe not everything. <laughs> uh, but no, you're right. And I think the fact that it was so well received uh, by the audience, I think it was one of the first Bond themes that did really well in the charts as well in America, perhaps. Mm. Um, so, yeah, they clearly saw that and thought, All right, well, that worked. And then that's why we ended up getting a lot of similar songs throughout the 90s as well. There's just so much energy to it. I just love it. Like, it's not, there's more energetic songs out there, but it's just such a cool way to start a Bond theme. And it's another one where, just like with the music in the opening scene, you don't know what you had until it's gone. And now that it's back, the idea that, like, from Russia With Love, I love that theme. The, not the focal version, but the one they use in the credits. And it's got so much energy to it. And that's what I love. And this one also has some of those elements. Like, I want to be a bit more energetic i wanted to be a bit more high action you know we've just seen bond ski and take on a helicopter and explosions and stuff that should go into like dun dun like in your face sort of stuff it's like it's what these should be it shouldn't be like romantic or like and swoon it just shouldn't be that every time so i really appreciate and i was pretty pretty happy when this song starts like the beginning of this song is so like yes i am so ready for this like, yes, I want to watch Old Man Roger. I'm here. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I mean, I don't, well, unfortunately is a bit strong, but I think the actual title sequence, though, um, is still better than what we've had before um, with some of the sort of visuals that they're using. It's With this one, it's a lot of fluorescent to UV lights and and kind of tattoos on women's bodies and glowing guns and there's a few lasers in there as well and we get some kind of strange almost a bit like the skull in living that direct cuts from the woman to the skull we get some things like that but with ice sculptures and and uh one of the lyrics in the the song is about dancing into the fire so you get fire as well and i really like all of the ideas in this because it's matching in with the song it's not you could argue it's matching in with like ice and we've just seen <laughs> snowy scene, I suppose, maybe, but it's more just like, you know, fire and ice themes. And as we've said before, usually a winner, fire and ice and water can't go wrong. Um, except, I don't know, something about the way that it was done, like the actual implementation of some of these visuals just looked a little bit amateurish to me. Uh, not enough to ruin the whole thing. I still appreciated it for being a bit more. But just some of the shots looked a bit bad and they kind of made all the women do the same dance with the gun, like looking straight down the lens. And it's could they not have maybe mixed up a little bit more with that? And yeah, so it's good potential, but um, could have been better. Yeah, I overall quite liked it. The song helps a lot, to be fair. Yeah. And you're completely right. Live and Let Die is the closest comparison because they use like uh, just black backgrounds this time, which they don't always do. Uh, so it is kind of going back to that. And like you say, there's a lot of zoom-ins and the fire coming on screen as well. So I like that. And I really do appreciate that they are trying to do some theming with the ice here. Uh, mm. That is just such a... That in itself, I really appreciate the effort. And the my favorite part of this is the shots of the women silhouette skiing and flipping mm. in the air. I thought that was awesome. Yeah. Like, finally, like, yes, we know you're going to have women's silhouettes. I want to see those. That's fine. But actually doing something a little bit different with them that ties into the theme that they're going for with this. Like, yes, more of that, please. 
Um, but you're completely right. It just felt amateur. And I think it was the dancing that did it. Like you just yeah. got these women just awkwardly like swaying a bit. And it's just like, they just look really out of place. Uh, and it, yeah, like, and there's quite a lot of it as well. But I still think this is a big improvement. I think maybe it, it might just be a budget thing or something. I just, I just don't think they might not have the budget to make these as good as they kind of need to. Potentially, yeah. And they keep, this is the thing I was mentioning earlier, they're reusing the same footage of Roger Moore, I think, from The Spy Who Loved Me. I think it was from that film, yeah. It, like, where he's kind of on a uh, profile shot of him and, and then they, they use it twice in the same <laughs> in the same sequence. They use it like that where you can see him and then they use it again silhouetted as well. They really like that shot. Yeah, I quite like it. It's just, uh, it's been, what, 10 years? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, just a little bit of time passing. But no, uh, overall, big improvement. Could have been better, but I'll happily take it. Um, yeah, and we move into the uh, M's office. We move into, well, not M's office, got away, but, you know, London, um, the MI6 office, and Bond is there entering Money Penny's office. Now, was the joke here as he enters that he's about to throw the hat, but it's in a different place? Because... I don't know. He sort of goes to throw a hat, doesn't he? And it's, and then he sort of gets caught off guard. Yeah, I think that is the joke. But the hat's always it's always been there, hasn't it? Next to the door. I th- I think in, at least in the so. past few. <laughs> I don't know. I really why would you? Yeah. Why would you have a hat rack by M's door? Right. Like logically, you would put it by the door to enter the office. Yeah. Unless there are two hat racks. Oh. Now, hang on a moment. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, Bond is there in in Moneypenny's office and she's wearing this big pink frumpy thing and he comments on that. And and there isn't really much between Moneypenny and Bond here because he quickly gets whisked into uh, M's office, like through the phone, M saying, no pleasantries, get Bond in sort of thing. The one thing I did want to point out in the scene is you mentioning about Roger Moore's strange voice in the Iceberg sub. Is it just me, or does Roger Moore in this film, numerous points in this film, have very strange eyes? Did uh, you notice that? I'm not sure. I, I don't know if I honed it on the eyes. Okay, maybe it's just me. But particularly in this scene where he's talking to Moneypenny, something... Now, I don't want to get too much into this, but I'm, some people think that Roger Moore had some surgery done, some some plastic surgery done, facial surgery, and that's why he looks slightly different in this film, along with other factors. But the only thing that I would lead to believe, like believing that, is that he, the eyes—he always seems weirdly wide-eyed, like like he's had something done. And I don't know. It really creeped me out because at numerous points in this film, I couldn't stop staring at his eyes, and they look <laughs> well, he just looked odd to me. It's it's really not a big deal, but it's just something off the bat. I was like, oh. That's different. And then obviously, I think we said before, but um, his mole is gone as well now. So, Yeah, that's sad. Yeah. But I think I read somewhere that it was like turning cancerous, so he had to get it removed. So that's probably acceptable oh, in that regard. That's not you know? so sad then. Yeah. But I, I don't want to go on too much about Roger's age because we already have. <laughs> yes, that's true. <laughs> We're like, the music's great and Roger's really old, right? It's Book the it. elephant in the room. So let's just, oh, we've, we've, we've pointed it out now so we can move but on. I will, I do just want to say one last thing. Like he definitely looks old, but similar to Octopussy for me, I was expecting worse. And I don't know how bad of an image I had in my head, but he didn't look as bad as I thought he would. 
he looks really bad, not really, really bad. <laughs> <laughs> to me, it's sort of it it, it ping pongs. It like from scene to scene. One scene, maybe it's just the lighting. It's probably just lighting, you know. Uh, that can have a huge effect on how people look. And one scene he looks fine. The next scene is like, oh, he looks he looks ten years older suddenly. Um, yeah, I think there's just such a big thing around this that I was expecting it to like. If he had a cane and a hump, I wouldn't be surprised because people make such a big deal of this. This film gets ranked so low so often. And whenever people talk about it, they just say, oh, Roger was a bit old in that one, wasn't he? Uh, So I was expecting the worst and I don't think it's quite the worst. Like he shouldn't have done it. Like that's that's fine. But I it didn't really bother me that much. And I was somewhat expecting worse. So it doesn't look great. But I think it might get a little bit overblown just for oh, yeah. the sake of jokes which we yeah. have already done because it's funny <laughs> um but it's like yes he looks very old but it's not quite as bad as you might think i think there are definitely some criticisms criticisms you can make of this film i don't really think his age is a massive factor uh he still does he still plays bond pretty much like he's played bond in every other film like nothing really changes with that. You can argue about writing and plot and whatever later on, but yeah, I, I would agree. I think it was overblown, and although I have said quite a few times already about his age, it didn't affect the you know the the enjoyability of this film for me very much. Yeah, to me, it's just it's like Diamonds Are Forever, where Sean Connery comes on screen like, oh, it's, he's going grey. He looks a bit he looks a bit off, and then there's specific scenes where he doesn't look quite right. But overall, you do just kind of forget it apart from specific scenes yeah anyway um back to the film (laughs) bond gets called into m's office and in there is m and uh the minister as well as q and q's got his little robot uh, dog thing dog gadget it's like a little it's just a little rc Control. It's a toy. It's a bloody toy. toy. It's a base. It's just a toy, basically, that he's driving around M's office, and um, yeah, it says to bond it some, you know, some fancy thing they're developing or testing or whatever. It doesn't crop up, like come back until the end of the film, which I think is kind of odd. But um, yeah, in M's office, it's all about microchips. So Q, I think, is about to explain what microchips are, and and M basically just cuts him off and says, "No lecture, just get on with it." Which uh, is kind of nice. I'm, I'm sure the uh, Desmond Oyelin enjoyed not having to remember a huge speech about that. Uh, but yeah, the the plot starts off with the microchip that Bond recovered from the um, the dead body in Siberia was actually uh, another agent. It was 003, and they have compared it to um, one that they've got from their own private defense contractors um, because. There's this whole thing about how EMPs can affect microchips and cause them to to break. And and you get the minister sort of reacting and being like, oh, my goodness, the Russians could. I swear that's like one of his only jobs is to talk about Russians and how they could how they could uh, abuse like this, this potential like danger. Um, so, yeah, there's EMPs that could affect microchips across the world. And um, so the UK has a private defense contractor that makes microchips that are impervious to emps and it just so happens that the one that bond recovered from siberia they put this on a little screen q uses a little gadget to put both blueprints of the microchips on screen and what do you know they're identical so somehow the russians have uh 
got a pipeline into the manufacturer, they say, and it's, it's been leaked, basically. It, it sounds more confusing than it is, to be fair. Yeah. Like, I was, I was expecting the worst after Octopussy, but this is quite simple. It was just like, oh, we rely on computers nowadays. There's a microchip. It's a really good microchip, and the Russians have it. Like, there you go. Like, it's not... It's not too bad. It's it's basically that. Yeah, yeah. There's one thing I can appreciate for this film. For the majority of it, it is it is quite simple. No stupid fake egg, real egg nonsense this time. And yeah, uh, M's explaining about how the contractor that they used has recently been bought. Uh, uh, like six months ago, it was taken over by uh, Zorin and his business. Um, and so there's a potential security breach there, and there's an investigation to be made. Um, there's a, there's a little bit about, oh no, that comes later on. Never mind. Well, they do say a lot about Max Soren and it's something I really like actually that they just say his name because it's Bond kind of like asks about Max Soren. It's like, well, who is this guy who owns this industries? And I think the minister of defense is like, oh no, he's a French industrialist. He's an anti-communist and friends in the government. He would never do that or anything, but uh, Bond kind of points out that the leak occurred after Zorin bought the company, so maybe we should look into him anyway. But is the Minister of Defense is what was it? It was Drax that did the same thing, wasn't it? It was like, oh yeah. no, never, not that evil-looking man. <laughs> no, 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 I, no, no. I play, I play checkers with him or something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, they need to investigate the Zorin guy, and then it's sort of the scene kind of ends sort of suddenly where uh, the minister leaves, and then. M basically tells Bond he's got half an hour or so to go get dressed, and you sort of get a shot of Bond looking down, like, "Well, what, what, what's wrong with what I'm wearing?" And it's because they're off to uh, Ascot, I believe. That's the one with all the hats, isn't it? The horse racing with all the hats. Yeah, so it's a little bit weird all this because Money Penny, like Bond, Money Penny is in like this big pink fancy dress, and part of the hat gag is that Money Penny has this huge pink hat on the rack, which Bond's like, "Oh, it's a bit much." Um, but then they enter the room and Q is in like this fancy gear as well. And they don't really explain it. It's until the end where it turns out that everyone's getting dressed up to go to Ascot and watch horse racing. It's like, <laughs> is this just <laughs> yeah. a, a company trip? Like, a, Yeah, it's a team away day. <laughs> yeah, like this is part of your bonus. Come on, everyone, let's go. I don't think they actually explain why they're all going to Ascot. I guess it's supposed to be like... They're so British that, of course, the British go and watch the horse racing. It's what we do. It does tie into the plot, but uh, they don't really give a reason to why everyone's dressing up all fancy to go to Ascot. Well, I assumed it's because Zorin is there, but then why do they all need to go? Why does Money Penny and Q need to go? Why does M? That's a big security breach right there. Yeah, and it's only Bond that suggests we should investigate this guy. Yeah. I don't know. A strange one, that. Yeah, so... Pretty solid scene. I think it's it's okay. I don't have too much to say. It, I just want to reiterate, it is so nice that this just is not as complicated as anything in Octopussy. I think there have been some very real lessons learned. And I really, really appro- like the approach they took with the villain and with Zorin. And it's what they did with Goldfinger. Like It's that template that I really like with the villains, where they just say their name straight away. Just straight away. Like, Max Zorin, here's a bad egg. Not egg, actually. No, sorry. I no, 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 no. More eggs. He's <laughs> a bad cookie. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. Uh, here's a bad slice of cheese. Um, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, but like they they get it out of the way. Like this is more of a villain film than we had in the last one. And even though there's lots of different characters, they straight away zone in on like Max Zorin. In the same way like Scaramanga, where the guy's like, Scaramanga is sent to bullet, that's a problem. Like I think these films are a lot stronger where you get these villains right up front. And usually that means them discussing this person in M's office with M. Yeah. Yeah, it's typically typically where MI6 and Bond know the villain before the villain knows Bond, rather than the other way around, like we had with For Your Eyes Only. Yes, it's just framed in this way, and it, it doesn't have to be done this way, but to me, this is what really helps make a good Bond villain. Just make them a core part of the film right from the get-go, and again, pretty good so far. Pretty good. Yeah. So then we do cut to, to the horse racing, Everyone all standing there, cheering, watching horses, and everyone's in very fancy dress, like over the top. Initially, I thought, is this like a wedding? Or I thought they were in wedding gear, but no, it's just very over the top uh, type of gear. And we see Q and Money Penny cheering the horses as they run round and looking in these binoculars to take a look at the horses. And Money Penny's really shouting and getting into it for some reason. Um, and M and Bond are there, but they have binoculars too. But rather than looking at the horses, they turn around and look at Zorin. So Max Zorin is there watching the horses, and we see there's an American woman with him, which I think M explains to Bond as being May Day, uh, the woman who's always with Max Zorin. So we get a nice shot of, of those two watching the horses. And as the horses are going round, as this race is happening, they finish... And Money Penny gets all upset because she loses, and Zorin is quite happy because he wins. And everyone is shaking his hand, and we find out that Zorin has a horse called Beg- Pegasus that was in the race. So that horse comes around, and everyone goes. Zorin goes to the horse, and everyone's congratulating him and saying how great he is. And while watching all of this, there's a man. I want to make sure I get his name right. Called Godfrey Tippett who is a British man who, I think they call him a horse trainer, like, expert. I'm not exactly sure what his job role is. Oh, I, for some reason in my head, I've got it that M just says he's he's one of ours, or something like that, or one of us. Oh, okay. So I, I, I think they introduce him as, like, a horse expert. But, yeah, he probably is just someone who just works with MI6. He's not an agent or anything. He's just intel. one of these people that Bond knows. Yeah. Um, so this man Goffrey Tippett is is there and he's kind of he implies that it's fixed um, that actually Zorin did win but there's a little bit of controversy here where something's not quite right where he's not breeding his horses from like the known horse breeds that always win um, so a current currently it's being investigated someone is in investigating into this and, and seeing if he is actually cheating and while this all happens, the horse starts freaking out a bit. And we see Mayday, the American woman from before, trying to calm down the horse and get a very odd line, which I want to say is from Bond, but I didn't write it down. But it's like, she must take a lot of vitamins. It's like, oh, yeah, that's um, Q says that. And then, oh, does and then, it? Yeah. And then Bond says, maybe the horse does as well, or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that was a strange line. It was very strange. It was set up like it was a quip, but I don't quite get what they were going for. Yeah, because the idea is that this horse, Pegasus, sort of, I think it won quite near the end, like at the near the last second, sort of winning from nowhere. Um, or at least like on the final furlong, it does really, really quickly. 
which is sort of cause for alarm or at least suspicion. Um, but the thing I was thinking of back in M's office where M's explaining about Zorin, some of it was here as so I was getting mixed up where he starts when Bond and, and Emma are looking at him through the binoculars and they're talking about how he was born in East Germany and he speaks all these different languages and he has this sort of rags to riches story about starting in oil and then working into technology and like high tech sort of stuff. Uh, so yeah, you, you kind of straight off the bat, you get this this basis of this Zorin character being pretty special like oh there's a big big deal like uh you can speak all these languages and everyone is all like the talk of the town sort of thing and everyone knows them on the stock exchange and uh kind of setting them up for bond's introduction to him later yeah i didn't really write down many of the details of that but yeah it's nice like yeah i don't think you're supposed to remember all the details but you just get a profile m just straight away gives soren a profile you see soren from a distance and it's like that's the guy that's your guy <laughs> No one's thinking he's not the villain. It's like, yep, that's the villain. That's the guy. It's Chris Devil Walken. Come on. Yeah. So this ends with the Godfrey Tippett, the the horse trainer expert, setting Bond up with the detective who is looking into Soren's horses and seeing if anything's gone wrong. And that means that he's going to France. I don't know how they quite explain this, but yeah, this guy's in France. <laughs> so... Bond has to uh, go to Paris to meet up with this detective who's looking into all this. He's a detective. I did wonder that, so I, I went back and re-listened. It is a detective who's investigating uh, Zorin because of this dodgy horse stuff from the French Jockey Club, and his name is Aubergine. Aubergine. <laughs> <laughs> Which made me laugh, even though that, I don't know, is that a French name? It might be, but I just his name's Aubergine. That's funny. This guy's such a stereotype, I would guess that maybe not. Uh, yeah, probably not. But I don't have too much to say. I think they do a good job with setting up Zorin. Uh, Bond and Co. at the races is a little bit weird for me, but it's such a short scene that does what it needs to do. That is like, I don't have anything really good or bad to say about it. Apart from what I've already said about, we get to see Zorin straight away and we get that profile, which is all very good. Yeah, when you said it reminded you of a wedding, it, it did remind me a bit of when Bond gets married in on Her Majesty's Secret Service. And to me, that's just nice to see the MI6 team together, uh, all in one place, like outside of the office. Because uh, you don't really see that very often. You don't really see Money Penny with Q very often anyway. Um, Actually, I, we forgot to say Money Penny. This is the last film that Lewis uh, Maxwell yeah. stars as Money Penny. And it's fair enough. <laughs> I agree with that choice. Um, but yeah, so we get a little moment here. But I don't think she ever gets a proper scene and she's barely in this film. I think after this scene, that might be it. I think we might have seen the last of uh, Lois Maxwell here. There's what You get one more shot of her, but it's really sad and pathetic at the end of the film. Ah, right, okay. Yeah, is it, it is... I don't know. I guess they didn't... They weren't going to make a big deal of it. Maybe they always had in mind that they were going to recast the character anyway. But yeah, so at least you had this little bit at the beginning, I suppose. Yeah, and I think it really makes sense that they recast her at the same time. Or, you know, or, you know replaced her. Or whatever they did, I don't remember, actually. Um, alongside Roger Moore. I think having those two actors walk away from the films at the same time made sense. I don't think it would have made sense if, say, Timothy Dalton was in this film to then recast her. It makes sense that they would wrap her, you know, have her wrap up at the same time as Roger. Oh, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, Bond is off to go see Aubergine in Paris and they're having dinner in the Eiffel Tower um, in this kind of big, fancy-looking restaurant that's somewhere on there and... Uh, very busy and they're getting all this champagne poured out and uh, this aubergine character who i just want to say straight off the bat 
is terribly dubbed. I don't know what happened. I thought we were past this point in the Bond films of terrible dubbing, but this guy is, is just flagrant bad dubbing all the way through. Thankfully, he's not in it very much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, he's kind of talking about the champagne and how it's how at least Bond's paying for it, all this fancy champagne they're buying. But Bond is obviously there to ask about Zorin and what the French know about him, which is basically not much from what the... Uh, the detective says, which is not great. Uh, and then a, a, a kind of butterfly show is also playing in the background on a stage as this woman who comes out and is blowing all of these butterflies in the air and uh, they're all flying around the room and uh, the music starts playing and the French guy sort of gets entranced by this and he's, he's loving it. Um, and Bond does spot that one of the performers in this kind of they're all in black and they've got a butterfly on a fishing rod because they're sort of floating it around the room as part of the act uh he kind of spots them in the, in the corner of his eye uh he asks a bit more about zorin and and where to go for answers sort of thing and uh anything to do with the horses and aubergine says that nothing showed up in tests in terms of like steroids or or illegal substances in the horses and and the best place to go for answers is a horse sale, like a stud farm sale that Zorin is holding uh, very, very soon and to go there and have a look. Um, or at least he's got, the plan is he's going to go there and have a look. But uh, yeah, before he does get a chance to say much else, one of the the performer all in black with the fishing rod, there's another person that comes out similarly dressed and knocks them out and takes over with a, a different fishing rod with a little butterfly on the end and and whacks it into <laughs> aubergine's face and i guess the idea is it was sort of like a poison tipped hook at the end of this rod because he just sort of falls flat on his face in his food and, and dies instantly just in time for bond to I think he says there's a fly in his soup or something when everyone yeah. reacts to him yeah i mean that was that was too easy not to do wasn't it come on uh so yeah, bond notices this and, and spots the person running away all in black uh and and chases after them I'm kind of glad that this bit is so short because, yeah, as I said, that character was really annoying me. It was kind of like a cartoony character, um, which maybe I shouldn't be surprised at cartoony characters in this film. But listen, Zorin can be cartoony and evil. This guy is just, oh, he really annoyed me. For how little he was on screen, he really annoyed me. For it, I think it ties into how they handle France in this one because they're in France, they're in Paris, and it's one of the main locations. And it's not as bad as India in the last film, but it's still pretty over the top. I'm surprised no one showed up with like garlic and baguettes. <laughs> like I'm surprised Bond <laughs> didn't hit anyone with a baguette or something. Like again, nowhere near as bad as India, but I think this guy kind of represents how they were treating this, where Paris is mostly here for kind of a joke at just like haha city French people. <laughs> <laughs> which usually yeah. i'm all for but uh this this was a bit much because he has like the mustache as well right like it's yeah it's so over the top how like stereotypically silly french he was and his death was also just a little bit lame which is probably fitting but this is yeah someone being stabbed in the face with a butterfly rod it's like all right like um, but it didn't bother me too much it's nice to see bond in paris he seemed more like inspector clouseau like yes. he's fitting more in a Pink Panther film than a Bond film to me. Yes, uh, agreed. <laughs> but yeah, Bond chases after the assassin uh, outside the Eiffel Tower and uh, the assassin is climbing 
up, I think, actually. They're climbing up the stairs to go um, and try and get away, and, and Bond goes after them. And you get this kind of... It's very, very, very quick chase scene, which is a bit of a shame because I think the Eiffel Tower is kind of a cool location for an action scene like this. But it really just does involve Bond going up a few staircases, chasing after him. And at one point, they sort of hook and tie up Bond with a with a fishing rod. Not quite sure how that's possible physically, because <laughs> like he gets pushed back over the ledge almost. It's like that's one strong fishing rod. But um, yeah, that kind of gives the person enough time to get away as Bond's untying himself, uh, and they get up to a certain height and they jump off. They they parachute off the Eiffel Tower as Bond looks over and kind of sees them go down. And kind of should point out that it's really obvious who this is. Like you can see through the eyes that it's clearly the Mayday character that we've seen in the horse show. There's no real surprise or secret there about who it is. So as Bond sees that, he jumps on one of the lifts to go down the tower really quickly. Uh, and <laughs> speaking of like French caricatures... He steals a taxi from outside the Eiffel Tower and he's about to go in and the guy's sort of, oh, no anglais, no anglais, and Bond lobs him out and gets in and you just get so many shots of this taxi driver going, my car, my car. It's just, yeah. oh, shut up. For the love of God, please shut up. It's, yeah, not it's good. Like running after it, though. It's not just one quick, oh, someone stole in my car. So he's like, ah, oh, my car. He just starts running after it, and then it just keeps like cutting back to him, shouting "My car!" <laughs> <laughs> but it's such a fake French voice; it's it so is. fake. Yeah. But I will say though, that Mayday stunt when she jumps off, pretty, pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I think yeah. all the shots of the Eiffel Tower are really good. And yeah, you say it's a short little chase there, but I think it was still pretty cool. And we get the iconic pose. Uh, of Bond standing, shooting the gun upwards. And I think the idea of him shooting in the Eiffel Tower is pretty cool. And yeah, seeing someone jump off the Eiffel Tower or part of it, that's awesome. And seeing them parachute away, that's also awesome. Like, this was just a really cool idea. Are you saying that's an iconic pose because I did it as well? Yeah, like, it was okay. And then, uh... <laughs> <laughs> and then I went to the Eiffel Tower and I was like, right, I'm going to try and recreate Roger Moore. And I did it way better. Yeah. Yeah. Like people see the pictures of James Bond doing it. It's like, is that, is he copying Joe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I really, I, I do like the, the Eiffel Tower scene. I do kind of wish, as I say that, I don't know, maybe if they had done more there, it wouldn't have been as good because it really is over before it even begins. Don't know how much they could really do in terms of different sort of stunts on the Eiffel Tower. I guess it really is only limited to stairways at a certain point. Um, yeah, Roger on those got... stairs. No, there's no need for that. <laughs> It'll be like back on Fiora's Only, where he's running up those stairs yeah, for tip, ages. Tap, tip, tap, tip, tap. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, Bond is in the taxi and he is uh, driving after Mayday, who is still in the parachute. And we get a little bit of a car chase here. Um, Bond driving through the streets of Paris. Again, it's really not much. They speed through this stuff quite quickly because you kind of get you get a shot of the car going over a ramp and kind of drives on top of a bus briefly, which is kind of cool. Um, but the main gag of this chase is that the car slowly gets destroyed in, in different manners. Uh, so first of all, it, it gets whacked by sort of like a, uh, what do you call those? Like a guardrail? Yeah, like uh, the 
not parking thing, but you know where you would put your little ticket in and it goes up and yeah, and you drive through, then it comes down. It's it's one of them. Yeah, so he smashes um, into that. Yeah, yeah, like a like one of those arms, and he smashes in, and it kind of knocks clean off the roof of the car, so it's suddenly turned into like a convertible. Um, and then slightly later on, like a few more turns, he gets hit by a, another car on the back, and for some reason that cleanly cuts the car in half. So by the end of it, you've just got Bond driving the front half of a car with two wheels. Uh, I say Bond driving. I did say I wasn't going to talk as much about stunt stuff, but I feel like they didn't even try and hide the stuntman in this. I guess you can't really when it's an open-top car, but why did they write it like that? Like, There's just so many shots of him, and it's just clearly not Roger Moore. Um, anyway, I-, I will stop, I promise. Uh, <laughs> no, you won't. <laughs> I won't. I won't. Uh, you there do are get some the scenes we need to talk about with his face. Like... <laughs> uh, you get the Bond theme playing throughout all of this, which is... You know, it's a, it's a good use of the Bond theme here. It is you know, it is Bond doing some Bondy stuff and kind of comedic but action still. And uh, it kind of ends with Mayday landing on a boat, uh, like from the parachute, landing straight onto a boat that's going down the river. And it's um, it's this. I guess it's like after a wedding, like a wedding reception party on this boat. Uh, Bond parks the car and jumps off onto the boat as it's going under a, a bridge, smashes through, lands straight on the cake and. Gives it back to the bride. Congratulations! And uh, before he can get to Mayday, she's already got onto a speedboat that was kind of parked up next to it with Zorin. So they're driving off, laughing maniacally, sort of thing. And uh, Bond gets caught by these two angry-looking French chefs with the with the hats and everything. And uh, yeah, that's the end of it. It's. I mean, I don't like this stuff. This is where it goes from being pretty cool, where the second half of this is just pure comedy. But I don't know, it's just so short. It just didn't bother me. Like, it's very to the point. They don't drag these things out. And I would have preferred if they didn't do the whole tiny little car thing or if they did that a bit better. But And the wedding stuff, it's never funny to me when they have a wedding that Bond interrupts. It's just never funny. But I, it doesn't matter too much. Like, if I have to think about it, yeah, not a great kind of way to have the second half of this scene but it's so short and to the point and overall i really like that we have mayday be the villain here like this is no like what's that guy called sandor (laughs) oh sandor (laughs) yeah this is nowhere it's like just send the bull guy for bond to just take out this is like no we have zorin and we've already seen mayday with with zorin and we also see zorin again and mayday laugh at the end of this like straight away bond is fighting the main hench or henchwoman of the of the film and that's awesome like i really appreciate that so i still like this overall uh even if the comedic stuff don't land but i really like that choice it's like no 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 let's just get the main henchman there fighting bond and actually make them seem quite competent because they just get away bond just loses like she just gets away and i think that's quite cool in terms of setting her up as well bond loses and causes a ton of damages yeah i i, I agree i think with this rewatch, kind of realised that everyone always talks about Christopher Walken in this film, and they do talk. They do talk about Grace Jones too, who plays Mayday. But I kind of realised that yeah, Mayday is actually a really strong character, and as you say, straight from the get go, you're getting these scenes with with her against Bond, and and I think even just the small amount we see here and the bit we saw with the horse, such a striking kind of visual presence. I mean, Grace Grace Jones and the way that she has her hair in this film and the outfit she wears. 
it's a really strong, like a really strong character that gets off the ground really quick. Um, yeah, the, the the actual scene itself. I do think one of the things about this film, kind of overall, is that the, the stunts in this film aren't great. Um, and this is kind of an example of that. I think it's sort of a bit over before you know it, half-hearted. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It does... I kind of, in one way, I think I prefer that rather than it dragging like a like a live and let die boat chase. But equally, I do think more could have been done with a, with a Paris setting. Yeah, I, I think. Yeah, I guess you're right. Yeah, I I just I maybe it's just because it was octopusy, but I like this just being to the point. So like the bad stuff doesn't really sit with you for too long. You just get your bad jokes out there, and it still does what it needs to do. I don't think you're wrong about the stunts, but it's not something that really stood out that much to me especially because some of these set pieces i think are quite strong even if the individual stunts aren't amazing Mm, Um, yeah so i think that that helps yeah so after this uh bond is in the car with m and m is kind of telling him off a bit and we get a bit more M like oh what were you doing what what was going on there and we also see that godfrey uh godfrey tippet is in the car I'm going to have to start calling him just Tibbet soon. Tibbet. I'm looking forward to that. Tibbet. Mm. Tibbet. Tibbet. He's <laughs> um, also in the car. And we find out through this conversation that they've managed to get Bond into the horse sale that Soren is holding. So before Godfrey told them about this horse sale, that no, the detective, apologies. The detective, the French detective said, there's this horse sale going on that I'm going to go into infiltrate to find out what's happening. But instead, Bond is now going to to take a look. A look. So we very quickly then just cut to the estate where this is happening. And if you thought Drax was quite fancy and over <laughs> the top, somehow they're even fancier and even more over the top with this. Like this is the most extravagant, like rich people place I've ever seen. Like I don't know how they did it. Yeah, it's a great location. I don't know how they missed it for Moonraker. I bet they thought, oh, I bet as soon as they finished, they saw that. I thought that would have been good to use instead. We'll use it next time. Yeah, like this is so over the top and it's great. So we have this massive estate with all these like big mansions and a lot of horses being ridden as well, because this is a place where he's breeding the horses and training them. So so Godfrey is there with Bond and he's acting as the driver so he's in this quite fancy car where Bond is sitting in the back and Godfrey is driving in the front and they drive up to the front and uh, he is greeted. They say that they have a room for him. We see lots of horses and a man with a scar uh, greets Bond and shows him around the stables. Now, I say man with the scar because that is <laughs> it's right there. <laughs> yeah. I don't think he's ever named, is he? In my notes, he was always Scar Man to me. I, yeah, I went man with the scar. Yeah, I should have gone Scarman though. That's way quicker. <laughs> but I'm just reading uh, that his name is Scarpine. Oh, okay. Well, kind of on the nose, but yeah. I'm not sure. sure if that's how you pronounce it, but it's the word Scar and Pine mashed together. So they must have known this somewhat. Well, how unfortunate. Maybe he... Do you think he was born with the Scar? That's why they called him that? Or he changed his name when he got the Scar? Oh. I like the asking, second one. Asking the real questions here. Yeah, finally. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, so this man with the scar or scar man uh, is showing Bond around. He just looks evil. Like you don't know he's evil, but you know he's associated with Sorin, and he just looks evil. He's one of them. Mm. Um, so throws him around, and he 
they get to this like big circle pit in one of the stables that a lot of people are standing around and Scarman is explaining how the bidding is going to start soon and Bond asks about one of the horses. So the horse that Zorin won with before, the one that won under suspicious circumstances that is being... Um, yeah, that was Zorin's horse, uh, is called Pegasus. And Bond asks about the son of Pegasus, which I don't remember the name of. Oh, Icarus, maybe? Yeah, it's something like that. They're very Greek, aren't they? <laughs> these, something these like names. that. Uh, so I just put son of Pegasus, but uh, yeah, Bond asks about it and the man says, uh, yes, it's one of our, we're saving it till last. It's one of our top horses we're selling here and should go for around three million, which Roger is like, oh, that sounds quite reasonable. And at this point, I notice just how like smiley Roger is in this film. He's so smiley. It's always the same face, like this sort of this grin on his face. Yeah, yeah. there's no teeth or anything. He just gets a big wide um grinch style smile <laughs> oh he's it just really looking is. at you like hmm oh that really is like the grinch yeah oh damn <laughs> uh yeah i liked it though it's creepy but i liked it <laughs> uh and we see godfrey back at the car giving it a clean and godfrey sees pegasus or it might be the son of pegasus one of the horses anyway and decides to follow it and he follows it into these other stables these like much smaller more traditional stables that are nearby and we then cut he's forced to hide in one of the stables um, where all these horses are so we then quickly cut to zorin and the the scar man and the the man with the scar speaks to zorin and says something while they're looking at bond so they're clearly keeping an eye on bond and then we go back to to Govery and there's there were these stable hands that were working by these horses so uh, Godfrey waits for them to leave. They leave. He then goes into the stables in the back where Pegasus was taken, and the horse is gone. Oh. Uh, Pegasus was there and it's completely disappeared. So he's like, What? Uh, and we then go back to Bond returning to the car, and the Scar Man then says, Zorin is going to meet with Bond later. So Zorin wants to meet Bond, so they're going to meet up later. And Godfrey is offered a room in the service quarters in which they drive off, which. I was like, oh, I guess they're leaving. But nope, this is such a fancy place. They are simply driving to one of the other massive buildings on this estate. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a whole different room for, for guest quarters. Oh, yes. Yes, so they drive there and a young woman in very, very horse trainer gear, like the proper horse riding gear, uh, a woman called Jenny Flex is there. And, oh, is the line where it's like, what's your name? Jenny Flex?" And he's like, of course you are. Is that what he says? Yeah, which, <laughs> it's, of course you are. Yeah, exactly. I can't remember if he said that before. I, I, it did sound very familiar. Yeah. What was the, oh, what was the woman's name in The Man with the Golden Gun? The one in the pool. Chumi. Chumi. It's, 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 of course you are. Of course you are. That would make sense for him to say it there as well, yeah. That's what I'm surprised. thinking. I think he has said that before. Yeah. But Jenny Flex isn't even like anything... It's a weird name. I don't know who's called Jenny Flex, but it's nothing like... It's no pun. It's no chewy. It's no kissy-kissy. It's just yeah, Jenny the, Flex. I mean, I imagine you do have to be quite flexible to be a horse rider. So... You know, a very apt name. Oh, is that <laughs> what they're going for? Flexible. Um, I, I thought so, yeah. 
yeah, that would you don't make really, more sense. I was going to say, you, don't, you actually do see her quite a lot in this film, but you're not really in terms of an interaction. So that's kind of it, really. No. So she escorts Bond to the room, and we get these great little moments where the idea is that Bond is not saying he's James Bond. He has actually gone undercover, and Goffrey has also gone undercover with him as his assistant. So Bond orders him, like, <laughs> orders Goffrey to take all the bags, but at this point he's just calling him by his last name, Tippet. So <laughs> Tippet is carrying all the bags and is struggling and he's like, come on, Tippet, come on. <laughs> come on, stop wheezing, Tippet. <laughs> just... <laughs> and and like you have to remember that this guy is Sir Godfrey Tibbet. Like he's clearly yeah. very a very important person, but in terms of this disguise, he's it's <laughs> having to be yeah, put through all this. Yeah, it's so much fun this. Like this happens throughout a lot of these scenes where he's just shouting at poor Tippet, making all these noises and uh this is the humour I can get behind. And it's just Roger Moore in his element just shouting at poor Tippet. Yeah, it really is. Um so yeah, so they get get there and we get some very direct i would say lazy puns but they're just so direct because jenny and bond are talking and she's like i love a morning ride and bond's like i'm a bit of an early rising myself like there's like two or three of these like sexual innuendos right off like straight away like no breath they just quickly get the sexual innuendos out the way and then move on it was a yeah, it was quite interesting to see how to the point they're being with these now. It's just on that list. You've got to check them off when they're doing the script. Right, next. Yeah, so we they all get there and we see Mayday is around and I think walks past them. And eventually they do get to the room and they start unpacking and Jenny leaves and says the reception is at six. And Bond continues to keep up the act of telling off Tippett saying, now oh, come on, Tippett, really? Like, what are you doing? And while this is happening, Tippett or Goffrey is scanning the room for bugs. He's trying to see if there's any audio bugs in here and if anyone is listening on them. So Bond is keeping up the act to pretend that they are who they, they say they are. And eventually Goffrey finds a bug inside the lamp where they're listening in. And we also see the, the Scar Man is in like this little observation control room with someone else with uh, headphones on and they can hear everything that's being said into the room. So Bond gets out a tape recording, puts that next to the lamp and starts playing it. And it's just more audio <laughs> of him telling Tippett off. <laughs> it's so good. I love this whole scene. And I love if you actually try to listen because like, the scene continues and they go off onto the balcony. But if you do try and listen, and maybe it's on the subtitles, I don't, I don't know. But some of the things Bond is saying, like, have you wiped these shoes of oil rags? Come on, Tippett. It's just so good. <laughs> Yeah, I, it's really funny. It's, it's it's just really funny. But yeah, so they do that. So they go onto the balcony. They start talking a little bit. And Godfrey explains to Bond that Pegasus disappeared in the stable. So something's going on there. And afterwards, a helicopter lands in front or out in front. And we see Zorin approach the helicopter and meet with a, a young blonde woman. And we get some very, we get some more sexy horns play. Because it's yeah. like, oh, lovely young woman comes. Let's get those horns playing. It's like sexy saxophone cue. Very out of nowhere. Yeah. and Not, this not that end... cue. Yeah, not cue. Yeah. yeah, different cue. <laughs> different Very cue. sexy cue. <laughs> <laughs> out of nowhere. <laughs> uh, but this all ends with Bond looking at the young blonde woman and 
telling Gofrium she certainly bears closer inspection. So Bond is planning to meet this woman and also at some point investigate Pegasus. And this is all pretty good so far. I'm enjoying it. Like the jokes are funny. I like Godfrey and Tippett and Bond's relationship back and forth. It's it's so insanely over the top how posh this is that I quite like that as well. And we get another scene where we get to see Zorin and they introduce this new henchman, the the Scar Man, and yeah, this is this is all pretty good stuff. I at this point I was quite into this film. I have to say, I mean, I was too. I I, I kind of like pretty much everything at this whole um, chateau, you know, horse place in the film. And I think a large part of that is just because of the the dynamic between Bond and Tibbet. I just that's the two of them together are so good. I wouldn't be surprised if Roger Moore and the actor who plays him were actual friends in real life or something. They seem very chummy. Um, and yeah, doing this sort of disguise uh, role playing, it's, it's it's such simple stuff, but it is like legitimately quite funny. Like you have all the kind of grown worthy puns and stuff in a Bond film. But when you actually get something that is actually funny and does make you laugh, I'm like, oh, wow, you know, Bond films can be funny like this. It's kind of surprising. It reminded me once again of Diamonds Are Forever, where there were some of those elements in that film where it's just Sean being Sean and allowing to just have fun with it. And I got that same vibe here, where it's just Roger, like, being, he's been Bond for so many years and just allowing him to just have some fun with it and play it up. And there's quite a few moments like that in this film, but I got very strong fights with this. And I think that's what made it really work with Bond and Tippett, where Bond, or Roger anyway, is just having fun doing these scenes and being a bit more goofy and silly, but still very Bond-like. And yeah, again, it brought me Sean Connery flashbacks to Diamonds Are Forever because some of the elements of that film that worked quite well was Sean Connery just having fun and being silly. And we get that here, which uh, is really cool. You know what? That's we might have just found a pattern in the Bond films. There, I say it's just found as in it's just been discovered. But <laughs> there is definitely something so far, at least, with the last films of the Bond actors being where they just feel most relaxed and able to do that. And I'm now thinking, like, not that long ago, with No Time to Die. That's one of the things I liked about that film is how Craig seemed a lot more chirpy. Maybe it's just when they know it's their last, and it's yeah, I don't know. There, there might be something there. Yeah, overall, these last films usually are pretty bad. I'm going to say that. Uh, but I didn't think about this at all. It's not something I kind of considered. But you would kind of expect them to be all burnt out. But it's, it is the opposite. They're not burnt out. They're just kind of having fun while it lasts. Yeah, that's exactly it. At the party later that evening, uh, we do see Bond dressed up now in his white tux i think that was one of the things he was yelling at tibbet about get my white tux uh he's all he's all doled up and he spots um he spots zorin and the lady from the helicopter going into a room so he's just about to sort of head that way and as he gets to the glass of this door mayday suddenly steps in front and angrily points him to the other direction uh so he sort of again does that big smile that big grin and turns around uh and then <laughs> puts on these glasses these incredibly ugly glasses what <laughs> q worked all night on those oh i'm sorry i mean maybe they were fashionable <laughs> in the 80s but they're like the you know turtle shell huge glasses and roger moore just does not look good in them at all i'm sorry rog you can't pull those off there's a few things that you wear in this film you can't put off and that's one of them um, I can't imagine this is an 80s thing, though. No way in the 80s. They can't have been that blind. 
to think that like someone in a white suit like that could just wear these type of glasses <laughs> it just it looks ridiculous if he was in more casual wear well probably not they'll probably still look bad but the fact that he's very dressed up and at a very fancy over-the-top posh location and he just puts pulls out these like horrendous glasses it just looks so silly yeah yeah he he kind of twists these little things on the bottom of them and i guess the idea is that they let they let him look through tinted windows i didn't quite spot that the windows were tinted but anyway he's looking through to zorin and the lady in the heli- from the helicopter uh and it sort of brightens the view anyway and just makes it clearer to look at and he sees that zorin is writing her a check um and he puts the checkbook in his drawer and they walk out so Bond sees him leave and takes that as an opportunity to go in and, and break in and, and have a look for himself, which he does. And I can't remember if he uses a gadget for the draw. No, actually. I think he just lockpicks it. Yeah, like, just the old-fashioned way. He's had all the glass, the glasses gadgets, and now he's just, yeah, he gets into the draw uh, and finds the checkbook. And he, he does use a little gadget thing. I suppose it's it's a gadget. It's like a little tracing machine because he finds the the last check made or, the you know, the, the one coming up and puts this little... Is it Louis Vuitton? Was it a branded thing? It looked. I don't know, dude. I didn't. <laughs> I have get no those, idea what this was. Gotta get those sponsorships in. I think it was Louis Vuitton. Um, this thing over it to sort of slide, and and it's basically a tracer, and he traces the the last check made um, and spots that it was for five million dollars to an S Sutton. So he uh, he takes that tracing and and leaves and goes back into the party. Well, yeah, because uh, he gets. I think the the German man turns up. But before that, uh, you do get a very quick shot of Zorin and another American man uh, very, very briefly saying something about the main strike and how is main strike all, all set sort of thing. So that's uh, that comes up later on. But yeah, the, um, uh, the doctor man, who I think we did see, I think he was with the horse when Tibbet was spying on them. Yes, he um, was. Yeah, he comes up to Bond and sort of, you know, is asking, are you all right? Where are you, where are you heading to? And Bond's, oh, I was just trying to find the bar. So uh, this, this doctor takes him to the bar where they bump into... There's a lot of characters coming up now, uh, <laughs> so you have to bear with me. Uh, they bump into the, that American man who introduces himself as Bob Connolly, who is Zorin's oil businessman and looks after Zorin's oil manufacturing and all that sort of stuff. And as Bond is having his drink of champagne and he's kind of holding it in front of him, he's got this ring on, which clicks every now and then and takes a photo, takes a quick snapshot of this uh, Bob Connolly guy uh, who eventually leaves. And so Bond starts talking to this doctor instead. And he's a breeding consultant for Zorin for the horses and talks about how he uh, like his method for getting all these crazy fast horses and, and Bond sort of prying a little bit into how he does it. Again, he takes another photo with his ring gadget. Uh, and then Zorin turns up. So it's like back-to-back characters, just a very quick introduction to all these people. And and Zorin actually now face-to-face with Bond, gets to actually talk to him, and they very briefly talk about horses and why Bond's there under the, the guise of... I didn't quite catch his name at first because he says it in a really weird way but then i saw it written down i was like oh okay so it's spelt like saint john smythe but he says it like sinjin smythe and i was like oh that's interesting but um <laughs> he is pretending to have inherited a uh, stables or something from his dotty old aunt he says 
uh, and that's why he's there. Although he does eventually become quite smarmy and um, start asking about uh, sports and whether Zorin's into other sports apart from horse riding and whether he's into fly casting as a bit of a callback to On the Eiffel Tower, which I think, you know, kind of gets a little bit under Zorin's skin. So he just says, enjoy the party and and walks off. He's needed elsewhere. Um, But yeah, this, this whole scene is like, as I say, it's lots of characters and it's not a crazy amount of like exposition, but you are... All these people do come back later on, so it is a lot of faces. I find this really interesting, though, because we have seen Zorin a lot in this film already, even though it's it's somewhat early on. But this is the first scene we actually see him speak. And I was kind of like, wow, that's... Yeah, we've seen him so much, and now we actually hear him talk. It's quite... I don't know, I think it was quite smart the way they did that. It's almost like the opposite of what they did with Dr. No, where you hear his name, and then you hear him speak, and then you see him... This time, you hear his name, you see him, and then you hear him speak. And I actually quite like that little mix-up, and it made it kind of stand out a little bit more, like now Bond and, and him and him are talking. Like, this scene isn't anything that crazy, but again, I think they're just being very smart with the way they're building this villain, and we see him doing stuff behind, and now we actually get to have a conversation quite early on in the film. It's cool. I really like it. Yeah, and I think... One of the things that obviously comes up with Christopher Walken when everyone's doing impressions of him, it's the way he speaks and the sort of strange manner and the pauses and things he has. And you do get a little bit of that straight away, like when they're talking about, I'm happiest when I'm in the saddle. And it's just the way he says certain lines is just a little bit off. And I guess it is that idea of planting the seeds of this character being a bit strange and later on finding out that yeah he's he's a psychopath basically uh but as you say it's nothing too major right now but it's just very early days of bond and, and zorin yeah uh after that so one when zorin leaves bond spots the lady from the helicopter and wants to go and find out more so she's kind of uh standing on her own near the um the waterfront so he goes over and you kind of get Bond trying to pry and, and ask questions to this woman and she's just having none of it. Like he, he's asking about why, why are you here? Are you buying or selling? And oh, she gets all offended. Oh, horses, obviously. Um, and it's basically Bond. I don't know what the idea is here, but Bond acting really sort of childish. I don't know. Again, he has that big grin on his face. Uh, eventually Zorin spots that Bond is talking to her and tells Mayday to go and stop him and interrupt but yeah i I don't know i I guess it's bond trying to act a bit naive and and find out information but because she's just having none of it he just looks kind of stupid (laughs) to me in this scene and yeah mayday does eventually come and and take her away and and says that uh she'll deal with bond and uh she'll she'll see to it personally that bond is taken care of that's what he asks anyway but um Oh yeah, one other thing as well is that Mayday has she literally has horns in this scene. Like her hair is <laughs> is done up in a way where she looks like she has horns. I think her hair changes in pretty much every scene. And she's wearing this really, as I say before, it's really kind of uh out there dress as well in this thing. And it's like she looks great. I really I just I can't say enough. I really love how this character looks. And I love that her hair does change all the time. She always looks slightly different. Um yeah, really cool character. 
I like Mayday as well. I was surprised how much I liked Mayday, but yeah, I think what stands out about her in the scene is that it's Bond being cheeky, chappy Bond trying to talk to this young woman, being like, "Oh, I'm English," <laughs> and Mayday just comes over and just like physically stands between them. And I think there's such like a a power play there that you don't normally see, where Mayday's just like, "No, no, no, <laughs> this ain't happening." Um, but I also I still like that Bond is still trying to be like, oh, I was hoping we could spend the evening together. I, maybe it's because it's his last one. I don't know. I, I'll give him one more round of Roger being daft, Bond being like acting the fool and saying being silly. I, I quite liked it. Uh, I will say, though, and this didn't click at the time, but we had a slow version of the main theme play, A Few to a Kill, the Duran Duran song. Mm. And... It didn't click at the time, but the reason why they play this song here is because this blonde woman's the Bond girl for the film. Ah, an audio cue. Not that yeah. cute. So, like, this is something... Oh, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I'll stop doing cue. that. That's, bad jo- <laughs> That's a bad joke. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> um, but, yeah, they're still... Even though they've completely changed how they're doing the main theme, or they've gone a completely different style, they still take that main theme and take the melody of it and mix it into or write a new version of it where it's a slower romantic song and i didn't mind that approach that it's something they do for you know a lot of these films even when they do the pop versions of the songs or you know a less traditional one but it was so weird hearing it and having them try to use it this way when this very first scene is just bond acting stupid and she's just being sarcastic and cold and then that's it and mayday breaks it up it's like, was this supposed to be romantic in any way? Like, because it just wasn't. I liked that it wasn't. I liked that she was just like so cold towards him initially because it makes more sense. But like, it makes me think, why did they play A View to a Kill here? Yeah, I, I think you're probably right in that. It's just, it, it's the Bond girl theme for this. And I, I really do like this slowed down instrumental version. I may sound like a bit of a hypocrite there, though, because I can't remember if I said I didn't like it with Octopussy. But I think that's, if I did, I'm going to hazard a guess. And it's probably just because the melody of this one, I think, is better, uh, just better sounding and lends itself better to this for the horns. And um, there's there's a different, there's a few different ways you hear it. Like there's a flute version later on, or maybe not a flute, but like some wind instrument anyway. Um, and I, I really like it. I really like it. And there's a, there's like a big bombastic version later on. I think it's used really well um, later on. Maybe here, yeah, it is a little bit strange, but I still like it, yeah. Yeah, I'm just kind of very much done with, oh, let's make a slow romantic version of the main theme as like the Bond girl theme. And I know they stopped doing this eventually, but it might not be until the Daniel Craig era. Like this might just be what they have done for like most of the films. And it just really stood out to me, the fact that A Few to a Kill, this 80s pop song, has been remixed into this type of song, into this type of scene. It's uh, I'm very much looking... I, I want the main theme to be remixed into the score of the film. I really like that. But when it only just kind of signals like, oh, Bond girl and Bond are together, it's just like, you could do a bit more with this. And they do mm. in later films, at least. Yeah, like, you want like a... Like Vespa has her own theme sort of thing. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, so we then cut to at night and we see i put it as the monocle man but this is the doctor that uh, bond was just speaking to <laughs> monocle man i like that yeah 
Because the most distinctive thing about this man is that uh, he's German and he has this big monocle that he has on one of his eyes. He's a very, like, stereotypical, like, scientist-looking German man. Mm. And we see him going into the stables at night, the stables that Goffrey was in, and we also see that Goffrey is there. And he goes to sneak in and he goes to check to see where Pegasus was again uh, and is still missing. So he's looking around, inspecting the wall, trying to find a way, you know, what's gone on here. And a hand appears quite creepily and grabs him and it's Bond. (laughs) Oh, yeah. What was the point in that? I don't know. Bond's just that good. He was just like, oh, zombie, ah! <laughs> well, you know, we we have discussed John Glenn does like his little jump scares, so maybe well, maybe it wasn't really a scare, but you know, he likes those little moments, doesn't he? Oh yeah, you're right. It probably is just a John Glenn special, but so yeah, so <laughs> so Bond and Godfrey are here, and Bond says, "Ah, oh, here's a button," and just presses a button, and it causes that part of the stable to go down like a lift. And is it Bond that says, hmm, "Quite a letdown"? I think so. Yeah. I'm just so numb to these, I think. Like, maybe there are some I like, but I'm just numb to them at this point. <laughs> it's just give, so nothing. Give someone else a go, Bond. Like, let Tibbet say that or something. That would have been nice. Well, Q said the vitamins thing before, right? Yeah, Q, Q has said a couple in the past, but I think it's just when it is always Bond with these quips, typically. Yeah, I've, enough's enough. Yeah. They don't bother me. It's just just so half-hearted, and they have been for a while, so... I can't imagine Timothy Dalton's going to be saying many of these. That's true. That is true. You have a nice break there. Yeah. So this goes down into an underground lab. So not a massive lab, but still, you know, this lab with lots of beakers and, you know, very stereotypical looking lab. And I think Bond is in like joggers or something. He's in like a, he's in like a tracksuit and it looks terrible. I don't know why he's wearing those. It's not like spy gear or anything. It's just, yeah, a tracksuit. I, I guess, is it them trying to make Bond look younger? But also, Tibbet is right next to him and kind of dressed more appropriately. So yeah, Tibbet looks why, all right. Why doesn't he just look like Tibbet? I don't know. Ah, oh, Tibbet. So, yeah, they're looking around the lab and they see the horse. I believe it's Pegasus. I might have this wrong. It might be the son of Pegasus. That would make a bit more sense. Um, But it doesn't matter anyway. So they see the horse in the back and we cut to the man with the scar into the surveillance room that we saw earlier. The one where the man was listening in on Bond's room using the bug in the lamp. And he asks about what's going on with uh, Smythe, Bond's fake name for this. And he's like, sleeping like a baby. And we see that... Bond has left the tape recording of snoring right next to the lamp, which is quite cartoonish <laughs> snoring. It's like like really over the top snoring. It, yeah, it's cartoonish snoring, and also you get a nice dramatic zoom into the recorder as well, just to yeah cherry on top for that. Yeah. Um, so Bond is looking around and he inspects a wall, and he finds a well. He's just looking around, and we see that some men are coming to the lab. They are outside coming into the stables. And Bond, you know, so somebody's coming in. Um, so they're still looking around and they go up to the horse, Pegasus, I believe, and they see that it has some type of injury. There's a bandage around its leg and Godfrey's saying, oh, it's had some, some surgery. Of which Bond then puts quite a lot together here 
and is saying that one of the microchips has been put into the horse and it's like an injection that helps control the horse and it has uh, like steroids. And is it steroids? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like some sort of boost, something to boost the horse's stamina and performance and things like that. And that has gone in as a microchip inside the horse. And Bond <laughs> surmises that you can remote control this microchip by putting something into like a jockey's cane, which essentially comes down to that when the horse or when the jockey is riding the horse, it can press a button on the cane and that will set off this steroid inside the horse which will boost its performance at that exact moment which is how Zorin's horse Pegasus won before because they were able to do this and it's a bit stupid but I don't know it's it's another one of these where it's like such a small part of the film in the grand scheme of things that I actually didn't mind it that much I when I was rewatching this I was worried that that was going to be more of a deal than it actually turns out to be um i'm thankful that it's not as you say it's it's really in in one of the scene pretty much um but yeah bond really does get a lot from a very little like a very little he's looking at he looks in that cabinet and sees a test tube and he's like oh yes clearly it's this which leads into this and it's controlled by this and he just knows the whole plan yes which i don't mind that anymore that's fine after octopussy i don't mind just sped it out have it look at the <laughs> camera if you need to <laughs> have a little wink as well just a cheeky one yeah, Bond just stares at the camera, wings. He gets like a like a school board out and a pen, just starts writing stuff down. Now, listening here. <laughs> and then Q's like, hey, that's my job. Hey, come on. <laughs> I'm here for a couple more films. Uh, so, yeah, so that's the, the plan that's going on, or what is going on with these horses and how Zorin is cheating. And as they're figuring this out, the lift comes down into the lab with the two men. So they go like, go hide, like Bond quickly hide. And as he goes to hide, he puts the test tube back he was looking at and puts it in the wrong place. Or there's Mm. like a zoom in on it to show that. But they turn off all the lights and they go and hide. And these two men, these two henchmen who are looking around, two goons, uh, can't see anything. And this was a little bit confusing because it looks like there's like another set of stairs below that they can go down to connect up to this factory line area. But I don't think they ever actually like show how they get there. It's just Bond and Tippett are in the lab and then it just cuts to them being inside this warehouse and then eventually the henchmen chase them. Yeah, it's I guess there's a, another level below or something. Yeah, it's very awkwardly edited though. Usually you'd get a little shot showing how they connect, but you don't. They're just two rooms, but it doesn't matter too much. So Bond and Tippett go down to this big warehouse factory line. This is... a. Uh, a uh, conveyor belt going along with all these big crates that say Zorin Industries on them. And inside the crate, Bond sees a, a microchip and Godfrey accidentally like hits a button to turn off the belt, I think it is. So they go and hide. And as they're hiding, the men who are following them, have they get their guns out and they follow. And as they're looking around, Bond and Godfrey attack each of the men separately. And there's a little bit of a fight and Bond... So Bond puts one of them in one of these crates and then turns on the conveyor belt, which then like puts the lid on top of the crate and it starts moving. And we see that Godfrey loses his fight against the guy. So Bond comes to fight him. And there's a little bit of a fight here, which eventually I I didn't write down many details because this is pretty whatever. There's a little bit of a fight which ends with Bond winning against this big guy 
and putting him on the conveyor belt, turning on the machine, and then he gets like wrapped up in the packaging and then gets like pushed along the belt. Like, like yeah, I didn't write down much because I don't. I think this is meant to be a little bit more comedic because it's it's somewhat like the ice hockey stuff before, really, right? It's Bond fighting goons, but he's like using a prop in the environment to dispatch them, which is meant to be funny. And this time it's this packaging in these crates on this belt or conveyor belt. It's just like, ugh. It didn't bother me that much, but pretty weak, uh, just like all the Roger Moore fight scenes, really. Yeah, it's it's definitely, uh, as you it's kind of whatever. It's just uh, such a small fight scene with two old men fighting two younger men, <laughs> and they still they still win. Um, and it, I think it's pretty much this whole like packing plant thing and the conveyor belt. Yeah, it's very comedic in that sense. But I because you do eventually get a shot of someone reacting to the the goons later on down the conveyor belt. So I guess it was there to then make it so that they know something's happened but also is it just there so bond can say it's all been wrapped up because that i feel yeah, like i feel like yeah, maybe we've got that line and work backwards yeah <laughs> guys i've got this great line well not great <laughs> it's a line um, i've got a line can we get this in but this doesn't bother me again i have to kind of reiterate that a lot of what this film is shown like there's been some weak elements but i don't know none of it really bothers me I don't know if it's just because of Octopussy or what, or if it's just because this is 14 films in, but this is a little bit weak, and maybe in the Sean Connery era I would have been a bit harsher, but I'm just like, yeah, it just follows the the standard formula we get with these Bond films. I guess it's nice to see Godfrey or Tippett still here, which is nice. It's Yeah, it's all very standard. All very, They have a bit of a fight, and there's some jokes, and yeah, you know what it is. I'm in the same boat, and I was kind of surprised, because there's... A lot of things in this film that I'm not, I'm not hating, but I'm not loving, and yet I'm still enjoying it. And I really couldn't explain it. I don't know why I'm enjoying it so much, but I was. I think you've summed that up like exactly my experience as well. I'm not loving it. I'm not hating it. I'm just enjoying yeah. it. <laughs> and maybe that's all it needs to be. You know, that's all a Bond film needs to be. I enjoyed at least up until now. I'm enjoying watching the film. Yes, agreed. I also. Uh, have enjoyed the film up yeah. to this point with all the fighting going on in the packing plant uh we do cut to mayday and zorin who are in the middle of doing some martial arts together i don't know what the actual martial arts is but they're there in their in their outfits um grappling each other and knocking each other down you get a very never mind sweaty <laughs> sweaty sean you get a very sweaty walken at one point uh as they're Ooh. sort of like wrestling on the ground and it's kind of a bit strange and weird where they're like grunting and and Mayday is snapping at him and biting and it's kind of playing into this, like the relationships that these two have together, which is it's like you know a romantic relationship to an extent, but also just just weird. There's no other way to describe it. Um, and yeah, as I mentioned before, someone does eventually spot the goons coming down the the. Uh, conveyor belt and so they kind of sound an alarm and and they uh is it is it Scarman that tells zorin about there's been an intrusion yeah yeah so um he immediately suspects uh smythe and says i'll oh, go check on go check on smythe see where he is so that that's kind of uh bond and, and tibbet now needing to head back 
Uh, Tibbet's fine because he's in the other quarters, the servants' quarters, but Bond, as he's going back to the chateau, uh, all the gates start closing and there's like a drawbridge that comes up or something like that. So you, you're, you're wondering, is Bond going to make it back in time? Because Zorin and, and Mayday are on their way to his bedroom. Um, it's kind of strange, actually, because as Bond's making his way back, which is sort of kind of off screen, and you get uh, you get Zorin and Mayday in Bond's bedroom where he is not there. But it's only now where Mayday says, oh, I recognize who he was or who he is. It's the guy from the Eiffel Tower. And I was just there thinking, really? <laughs> it's taken you this long? I guess... I, th- I didn't get that either. Yeah, I don't think this plot makes a lot of sense. I think it would have made way more sense if they never even brought it up. And yeah. Just, because earlier in the film, Sorin asks her, doesn't it? Like, do you know who that is? And she's like, oh no, she's like, hmm, I recognise that yeah. man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I don't know where from. It would have been better if, as you say, they just didn't address that and, and you kind of get the idea that they know that it's... It's him, but they're playing with him and, and, you know, trapping him, basically. I would have liked that more. But no, you just get this really awkward aha moment from Mayday, uh, which is kind of one of the very few things I don't like about that character. But anyway, um, as they're leaving Bond's bedroom, they're walking down and Mayday walks. I guess it's her bedroom or just her bedroom because she looks in and Bond's in that bed instead. And... (laughs) says something along the lines of well you did say you'd see to me personally and uh, invites her in uh he doesn't bond from bond's point of view he doesn't see zorin just off to the side outside uh you get this kind of great reaction from zorin where he's almost kind of impressed by bond he's like oh wow okay and and gestures to mayday to go in and and do what bond says uh but again it's these little things where it's just setting up that these characters are just really weird and and how Zorin is just kind of he's just kind of cool with this. Like, yeah, go go and sleep for Mayday then. Just do whatever needs to be done to work out what's going on in this situation. And he just sort of brushes it off and leaves. And so you get uh Mayday with Bond in bed. Um kind of a strange love scene. <laughs> Bond opens the covers for her. There's a really weird jump cut there. I don't know if you'd spotted it, but I don't know why. Yeah, like a very, very quick cut as she, she gets into bed um, and, yeah, starts to sleep with Bond. You know, I think he says, you're a woman of few words. Um, and, yeah, it's just it's just kind of, it's not terrible, but, like, you get these uh, shots of Bond and, and Mayday and Bond's there with his eyes rolling back, I guess, to sort of indicate, wow, this this character is, like, so crazy she's overpowering bond and bond can't handle it sort of thing and i'm kind of glad this is over very very quickly yeah this is just too quick for me to get that mad over like it's a really bad idea like the age gap is just too much and it's just really awkward like it did make me laugh when Mayday walked into the room and sees like naked Roger Moore in the bed we're like "Mm, come hither it's like "Mm, maybe not i'll pass (laughs) Like I think they are trying to play off as a little bit funny and cheeky chappy uh, Bond, but it's still a bit like, <laughs> oh, I was going to make a joke, uh, a, a very nasty joke at Roger's expense there. But yeah, it, it's like, it just doesn't work. And this ties into a problem with the film that doesn't bother me that much, but I know it's something that gets talked a lot about how 
Bond films have to have like three women that Bond sleeps with. And they're usually young as well. And with Roger being so old, it just gets more uncomfortable as it goes. And this one, at least I think Mayday has enough presence to kind of... I, I think I like the idea of Mayday kind of dominating Bond a little bit and being in charge there. I think that's really smart way of doing it. But they probably just shouldn't have done this at all. <laughs> no one wants to see this. No one came here for this. Luckily, it's nice and quick and we can get over it. But yeah, quite awkward uh, yeah scene. i just it just could have done without the cartoonic eyes rolling back from roger moore that's all but um anyway it is over quite quick we do see zorin and uh, the doctor down in the lab where bond and tibbet just were and uh zorin's asking has anything changed what's gone on and the, doc- the doctor does notice that one of the test tubes is in the wrong location where bond put it back in the wrong slot and so zorin says right well sort out a meeting with this smythe uh smith person in the morning and uh sort out what's going on sort of thing so yeah we just cut to bond heading into uh zorin's office or his study where the actual kind of reason for this meeting i think is zorin wants to ask st john smith about what sort of horse he wants and uh and question him about that and about the horse sale that's going on but obviously there is a ulterior motive going on Bond sits down in front of Zorin, who's at his desk with a computer next to him. And there's a big mirror behind Zorin. And behind that mirror is a camera, which is pointed squarely at Bond and is kind of analysing him as he's there. And uh, I like how Zorin kind of gestures over to a painting to get Bond to look to the side so he can get a profile shot as well and feeds that into the computer next to him. And the computer eventually does like a kind of scan to analyze who this person really is looking up on a database whilst that's going on zorin's asking about what sort of horse he'd like and whether he'd like a one with stamina or speed and bond is obviously just playing along with it oh i think a little bit of both would sound good and uh uh yeah the computer soon reveals that uh it is bond who works for the british secret service and he's got a license to kill um dangerous it comes up on screen and i like how zorin is just scoffing at all this again he's sort of i think he you get the idea that he's impressed that bond has got to this position and and uh yeah uh kind of it's giving him credit in that regard um but yeah the scene ends with zorin offering bond to try out one of the horses i think it's I don't know whether it was one. All I remember is its name was Inferno, but that might not be till later on. Yeah. But yeah, if he wants to go and take it out for a ride, because Zorin has a scheduled ride, so they can go out and and give it a try. Yeah, I I like this bit. It's Zorin. Yeah, it's because it's having fun. Like it's because Zorin is kind of doing what Bond usually does and doing some very fake acting, where he's just like, "Oh, well, this horse would be nice, wouldn't it?" While you just see his computer screen being like James Bond. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> had all this info and Zorin's just smiling like yeah this is great and it makes Bond look a little bit dumb to be honest but I didn't really mind that too much it was we still get more smiley Roger opposite like Christopher Walken be like haha yeah yeah (laughs) it's like uh, it's just two actors are having fun something that I didn't like though very minor is that it says licensed to kill which I thought was a bit odd but it said licensed with a s which I don't like it should be a should be a c oh dear ruined come on guys <laughs> um but yeah i i always forget about that license to kill thing i don't think we've had that for a while but that is something that's so iconic with bond that it's like it's double it's james bond 007 license to kill 
so it's nice to see that and uh yeah it, it was just a really fun way of having this scene of Zoran realizing who bond yeah. is yeah a nice way of revealing it um so they, they're off to go do the riding although very quickly bond does get in touch with tibet gives him a little whack on <laughs> whack on the bottom with his with his whip because uh, he's all dressed up ready to go horse riding uh, and tells him to go contact M in town about the the check that he traced earlier on and as an excuse to leave just uh, say you need to go clean the car and Tibbet was then just cleaning the car so he has to go and get it all dirty again it's just those little those little comedic things but um, yeah so he goes off to to drive off into town uh, and Zorin also you do see a quick shot of Zorin putting in that transmitter that Bond was talking about into his whip for the horse race yes yeah i like that small moment because yeah the car is perfectly clean (laughs) which bond obviously sees but he still says well just tell him you're going to get the car cleaned so tippet just has to slowly or just defeatedly just like gets his bucket full of the dirty water and just throws it on the poor guy (laughs) he's probably spent ages scrubbing that car Um, so yeah so this leads to tippet attempting to leave so he's in the car and he pulls up to the, the exit and we see Mayday is there and Tippett kind of smiles at Mayday a bit nervously. He's like, oh, I'm just going to get the car washed. Uh-huh. And she just stares him down and it's just like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> um, although I think it's, I'm trying to get this right because I think Tippett like gets out the car and then like Mayday disappears. Yeah. Yeah, so she's there one second and the tippet kind of turns around and turns back and she's just gone. Or is she? Mm. <laughs> so we then go back to Bond and Zorin where Bond is brought a horse to ride and this is where Zorin introduced the horse as Inferno. It's the name of the horse and Bond gets on and Inferno, the horse is kind of freaking out a little bit but Bond gets control and... They kind of start riding off and we go back and forwards between Bond with the horse and Zorin and Tippet driving through town. So Tippet is driving through town, being followed by a red car, which we see is Jenny, Jenny Flex from before, who is getting some some petrol and Tippet is actually going to get his car washed. Uh, so I think he does send the check, doesn't he? I don't know. This whole scene sort of confuses me. To be honest with you, because uh, uh, yeah, Flex is there. Are they there just? Are they there to block the view, or are they there just to keep an eye on things? I think she's just keeping an eye on things because we find out later that Jenny Flex is like very closely associated with Mayday, not uh, Zorin. Okay, yeah, all right then. So it's like yeah, so I don't know if you would really connect that at this point, but yeah, the point is that Mayday has. Jenny Flex, and then another character, a, a, an Asian woman who I'm not too sure where mm. she's from, but she's also like around, but I don't think she ever yeah. gets named. Uh, yes, yeah, so Jenny is uh, getting petrol for a car, and Tippett is getting his car washed. And as it goes through, so he's getting it washed in one of these, you know, the big traditional ones where it's these massive spinning brushes, I guess, things like. The very classic car wash where they all come in at the side. So we see a shot of the car coming forward, Tibbet driving it, and as it drives forward through the car wash, we get a shadowy figure come from behind and start strangling him. And as that starts, the the big car washer things come down and and covers it. Uh, and then we go straight back to Zorin and Bond. Yeah, it's very quick. Um, yeah, so 
Sorin of Bond are on their horses and we see a load of other people on horses nearby but they're all like beaten up and scarred and they seem to be in a pretty bad way um and Zorin says well if you i i think i might have got this wrong but i i believe that Zorin's like right well let's have a little a wager or a game that if you can run this course that we're about to run then you can keep the horse yeah that's right yeah yeah but then it's like if he loses i think Zorin's then just like well you just lose well, that's bad yeah yeah you know a bit ominous but you you just lose yeah yeah there's no like payoff there's no like uh like what we've had in some of the other ones where bond and villain pairs off it's just like no don't you don't be a, you're not not chicken bond. <laughs> <laughs> bond's no loser yeah you don't want to be called a loser do you he does the thing oh, like uh, l on his forehead no 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 yeah you suck at horses <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so Bond agrees and they all get on the horses and then start running the course of which Zoran gets a massive head start. I guess that's by design. They just let Zoran go first. So Zoran is now quickly running on this or galloping on this horse and Bond with a group of other people is behind him and there's a, a jump to go over so Zoran clears it and as Bond goes to jump there are goons all littered around with buttons So someone hits a button and this hedge pops up from top, increasing the height of the jump. So Bond is able to get over, but a load of the guys don't and kind of end up falling down. And Zorin stays in front. He goes to the next jump, the next hurdle. Uh, This one, after he jumps over, it kind of moves to expose a load of water. Um, So Bond is able to clear it, but some of the riders don't. And at this point, the riders start attacking Bond while he's on the horse. And I say attacking, it's more just judo chopping. <laughs> like, they don't have any weapons, I don't think. They're just like, hi-ya! Like, at each other. It uh, looks a bit silly, but... We got another hurdle coming up, and... But, like, so it's a a pole. So someone jumps it, and then a pole comes up. But Bond jumps, like, in between the two poles. Like, there's a very thin gap between them. And Bond manages to to jump between them, so... At this point, Bond actually manages to catch up to Zorin on the horse, completely overtakes him, and at this point, Zorin presses the button that was in his jockey whip, and that causes Bond's horse to freak out. So, implying that what Bond explained before about the whole stamina and power injection, uh, that is true, and Zorin has pressed the button to cause his uh, horse to freak out, which causes the horse to completely go off the track and run into the forest, of which everyone then starts chasing Bond, including the man with the scar, he shows up and they're now all chasing uh, Bond through these woods and Bond gets to a road and he sees Tibbet's car driving along. So he goes all the way up to it, jumps into the car, but instead of seeing, well, he does see Godfrey or Tibbet, but he sees Mayday is in there and Godfrey is dead in the back. His corpse is just sitting there and the car is stopped and Bond gets captured and... Sorin says, sorry, you lose 007. Sorin calling him incompetent. And we get a bit of a stare down between Sorin and Bond here where Bond is like quite upset and quite not happy that this has happened and gets quite serious where someone's like, ah, you're incompetent and rubbish. And Bond is just very not impressed and upset about Tibbet being killed. But Bond eventually gets knocked out and pushed into the car of which Sorin then drives the car away with them in it and... This was pretty good. Again, 
Oh. I have to say that in a high-pitched voice. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> but I actually kind of kind of liked this. It was uh, it was something a little bit different. It tied into the horses. It's I'm not sure if I'm, I'm super into Zorin kind of like cheating here, but I think there's something... I think there's a nice mix of this going... This feels like a more back-to-basics. Like, this feels like what John Glenn has been trying to do his whole era as directing these Bond films. Like, trying to find a bit more basic ways to have Bond take on some bad guys. So, this time, it's them on a horse, and I think there's something quite visually... uh, Well, that works quite well with them riding on all these horses. And then I also like the competition aspect of it. I think the competition aspect always works quite well between Bond and the villains, where they're kind of playing a game, but there's more stakes here. And yeah, I actually uh, quite like this this whole setup. I like the horse riding, and I like the whole steeplechase idea. And I, I, I even like the idea of Zorin uh, cheating, because that just got, sort of seems in his nature to do of what we've seen so far. Yeah, he would cheat if he needs to win. Uh, but I just I really don't like how uh, maybe it's just the way it was filmed. And I think because there's just so many things that happen back to back, like the thing goes, the hedge rises up and the thing goes back and there's water and then the pole. It's just and there's always like they always have the same shots of the person like crouched down next to it, pressing, pushing the button every time. It just seemed a little bit silly. I think this could have been a lot more grounded. And I, I really do think the majority of this could have just been uh bond and zorin racing and then introduce that whole steroid element to it um as enough of a of a obstacle you know causing bond's horse to go crazy i don't think you needed all the <laughs> the jockey stuff that jockey like all the jockeys whacking him with their whips and everything and beating him up as you say as they're riding up next to him it reminded me of that episode of the simpsons with the jockeys <laughs> do you remember the one all oh, right <laughs> Where they, like it turns out they're all evil <laughs> like, it's just i don't know it just seemed a little bit a little bit much. Um, if it was just toned down a bit, I would have. I think this could have been a really good scene. Um, I, I can see that. Yeah, that that probably would have worked better. But I think there was an overall sense of like Bond being completely like, like, what's the best way to describe this? But like, it's just him in a really bad situation. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Where everyone else, he's not in control. Everyone else is in control, and he's just having a real bad time of it. Like. The deck is so pushed against him with what Zorin is doing. And I think even though it's silly having all the jockeys like whipping him and chopping him and stuff, it I don't know, for me, it still plays into this idea of Bond is just like in Zorin's world and is so completely outmatched here that I think that is really cool. Uh, but even then, Bond still kind of wins the race and it takes Zorin to kind of cheat to make that what happen. But yeah, I think it still works as like the deck uh, fixed against Bond. So, yeah, I agree. I would have liked to seen a version that that stuff toned down, but I think that element is, is quite strong here. Yeah, I'm, I'm not going to escape that, am I? It's, it's just uh, part and parcel with this film. So it's fine. <clears throat> it's fine. And with that, you have reached the end of part one of episode 14 of the Bond Revisited podcast. Join myself and Tom next time where Bond heads to San Francisco, escapes from a burning lift in City Hall, discovers Zorin's plans for Silicon Valley, which all leads to the final showdown on the Golden Gate Bridge. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you for part two.